0: Well folks, good morning. Glad you all are here with us this morning. As the kids exit, why don't you grab a Bible from your lap or the pew in front of you. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's page uh, 1500 in my Bible. Matthew chapter 1, and we will be beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, as we continue in our sermon series this Christmas, the king and his kingdom, part 2, the king's advent. Matthew chapter 1, and we will be looking, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, the King's Advent. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching and teaching and receiving and living out of your word. Father, there is much to, to learn about your son through this little passage in the birth of your son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We have so much to learn about him, and through Joseph's example, we have much to learn about us. And so we pray that you would teach us this morning through your spirit and that we would love your son Jesus more because of our time this morning. We ask it in his name and God's people said, amen. You know, the story of Jesus's birth, I'm afraid for many of us, is familiar to the point of even being passé. But my prayer is that this video and our text this morning kind of helps us jump into the shoes of Joseph, if you will, and experience the biblical story of the birth of Jesus afresh. Because Matthew, unlike Luke, focuses on the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective, as Luke focuses on the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. Well, last week we began our series in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and we saw the king's ancestry, right? The gospel of Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy, and we explored that last week. We saw Jesus' legal qualification to be the king. He is indeed the rightful heir to the throne. Today we will see the king's advent, the king's advent, and discover his physical qualification to be Israel's messiah. So the account of the birth of Jesus begins in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It begins with a super sensitive situation. And we'll explore that in a bit. It then moves on to an announcement of a supernatural birth. In verses 20 through 23. And then the section ends with a super obedience being displayed by Joseph. In in verses 24 through 25. We'll end our sermon by looking at some applications. By seeing that this section then has a super significance for you and me. Well, let's begin in the text starting in verse 18. And looking at verses 18 and 19 as we begin with a super sensitive situation. Well, the account of the birth of Jesus begins uh, in in a pretty standard way, with a pretty typical situation. It begins with a young Jewish girl, likely of the age of 13 and 14, being betrothed or engaged, if you will, to a, a Jewish man who was likely a few years older than him. The story begins in verse 18 this way. Matthew says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. So the story begins... Uh, inauspiciously, very normally, if you will. But some understanding of how Jewish marriage worked is actually very helpful here to understand what's going on between Joseph and Mary. See, in those days, Jewish marriages were arranged marriages. So the parents of of the bride and the groom-to-be would essentially eke out a contract together and arrange a marriage. After this, the man and the woman were considered legally to be married. However, they did not begin to live together yet. Instead, what would happen is that the woman would live with her parents and the man would live with his for a period of roughly one year. A period of about one year. This waiting period, if you will, which we see Mary and Joseph described as being in here in our text— essentially, uh, was um, to demonstrate the faithfulness of the bride-to-be. See, the bride-to-be would take a pledge of purity concerning herself. Now, if she was found to be with child during this year-long waiting period, then obviously she had been unfaithful to her pledge, which was considered adultery. And the marriage could be annulled with a divorce. If, however, the one-year waiting period demonstrated the purity and the faithfulness of the bride, then they would uh, the, the groom-to-be would uh, kind of go to the bride's house and pick her up, and with a grand processional kind of a party kind of thing, lead his bride back to his home. There they would begin to live together as husband and wife, and they would consummate the marriage. So that is what is going on here. So, in verse 18, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. They are in the middle of this one year waiting period. So far, so good. Until we read the last half of verse 18. But, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So, so before this one year waiting period, was over, Mary, notice the language here, Mary was found to be pregnant. It's it's language from Joseph's perspective, is it not? He discovered it. She essentially, became it became obvious that she was pregnant. I don't think it implies that she was trying to hide it. It just so happens that she got big enough that it was obvious that she was pregnant. So, Matthew then tells us a vital piece of information that for Joseph at the time, he was unaware of. But Matthew lets us in on this vital information, right? But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. See, she had not broken her pledge of purity. She was still a virgin. This child that was in her womb was not conceived from the seed of man, but from the spirit of God himself. So put yourself a bit, as the video did, in Joseph's shoes. He discovers, it becomes obvious, that his bride-to-be was pregnant. How would he feel? How must have he felt He surely was bewildered. He must have felt betrayed and even torn. What should he do? Could he let it go? Should he proceed? What should he do? Certainly, this is a super sensitive situation, is it not? What would Joseph, the man of God, do? Well, verse 19 shows us what Joseph did with this news. Take a look with me in verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Your translation might say righteous, faithful to the law. And yet, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. What we see here is that Joseph's decision reveals his character. Namely, we see it at the very beginning of this verse. The New American Standard says that Joseph was a righteous man. And the NIV translated that, translates it that he was faithful to the law. That's what this word righteous means. It means that he cared about obeying God's word. He wanted to do what was right in this situation in God's eyes. According to the law, he was a righteous man. So what were his options according to the Old Testament law? Well, really, I think there were three. Number one. Number one, he could publicly expose her. He could publicly expose her at the city gate, resulting in her suffering the shame of a very public divorce. We see that happening, uh, allowed for in Deuteronomy 22. And that could have even resulted in her stoning. Although that was really not a practice in the first century anymore. So he could publicly expose her to the shame of the situation. Secondly he could divorce her in private before two witnesses, according to the law, Numbers 5 teaches us. So he could, in a sense, divorce her privately and shield her, hide her from public shame. Or, number three, he could actually take her as his wife, but apparently the text makes clear that he really couldn't do this in good conscience. First of all, because he believed that she was unfaithful to him. And secondly, just think about what that would have implied for him. Most certainly taking her as his wife at that point, I think would have been seen as a a tacit admission of his own guilt. And so he is stuck between a rock and a hard place. What is he to do? How would he respond? Well, with that in mind, verse 19 tells us his response. Joseph chose option number two, right? Right? He decided to keep the law's requirement, but he still wanted to be merciful. You could tell that he was compassionate and that he cared for her deeply. So with his mind made up on a private, quiet divorce, Joseph lays his head down on his pillow after a hard day's deliberations. And what happens? Well, we're told that he has a dream, and it was certainly a dream that he would never, ever forget. As we move from a super sensitive situation in verses 18 and 19 to the revelation of a supernatural birth, starting in verse 20. The text reads this way. But, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David. Notice that. Notice what he calls Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And here's the reason why. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And here's the reason why. Because... He will save his people from their sins. So, Joseph lays deep in sleep upon his night bed, and the angel of God descends upon him and delivers to him a message in a divinely derived dream. And that message begins with a name. He says, Joseph... Son of David, why is that important? Why do you think the angel reminds Joseph of his heritage, of his lineage, saying, you are the son of David. He's reminding him of his royal lineage, alerting him, Joseph, to the role that you're going to play in this divine drama that's being worked out through you and through Mary. See, the angel's message contains at least three key insights or revelations. The first, Joseph shouldn't be afraid. Joseph should not be afraid to marry Mary. See, his fears of not doing what was right according to the law were to be put to bed. His fear of the shame that he and Mary would face were to be put aside as well. He says, don't be afraid. Take her as your wife. Why is that? Well, because of the second key insight. Because the child that she bears is supernaturally conceived. Supernaturally conceived. See, here God tells Joseph what Matthew has already told you and me. We already know, because Matthew has told us, that the child that is in Mary's womb is no ordinary child. And that it was conceived in no natural way. We know that, but Joseph doesn't. Until now. The child within her is supernaturally conceived, right? Mary was indeed faithful to him. She was indeed still a virgin. And the child in her room is in her womb is spirit wrought. Now, how could how how relieved Joseph must have been, right? How much tension and strife must have in that moment to some degree, fluttered away. See, here we discover that the Messiah is no ordinary king. He's no ordinary king, right? He is a superhuman king. So Joseph, don't be afraid. Take her as your wife because what is conceived in her is from God. Number three. The angel tells him and you and me that Mary will bear a son. It's going to be a boy right? Start getting your blue baby clothes out. It's going to be a boy. And not only is it going to be a boy, but Joseph, I want you to name him a specific name. Not just any name will do for this boy, Joseph. You need to name this boy Jesus. Because, Joseph, here's what this child is going to do. This baby will save his people from their sins, so we live in a day where most often through the wonder of medical care and sonograms, we've, we can discover the sex of a child, the gender of a child, months before the birth, right? So for us, our first two, we discovered uh, the gender and so we were all prepared. But for the last two, we thought huh, it should be fun. Let's Let's find out, you know, the old-fashioned way we discovered at the birth. You know, uh, back then, there were no sonograms. They, they, There's no way of telling what the gender of a child would be. And so when the angel tells Joseph, Hey, listen, I have a divine sonogram for you. This baby, it's going to be a boy. It's going to be a boy, Joseph. And you are, you're supposed to name him something. Name him Jesus. Now, Jesus was actually a very common name in that day. But it was a significant name because the name Jesus, as we've talked about before, means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. So the name Jesus means something. It's indicative of what he's going to do. And the angel spells it out for Joseph. He says, Joseph, name him Jesus, the Lord saves because through him, the Lord is going to save his people from their sins, Jew and Gentile alike, anyone who would believe and place their faith in this baby boy, their sins will be forgiven. He is coming as a savior. See, at that point in time, the Jews anticipated that Messiah certainly would be a savior of sorts. They anticipated that he would save them from political oppression. And there was a sense in which he would even purify the the nation from their sins he would purify them either by decree or by appealing to the law but there was really not the sense at that time that messiah would die for the sins of the people that he would be a sacrifice for the sins of the people so here we see at the very beginning matthew is telling us something about this messiah he's going to be king over Israel, but he's going to be a savior king. So you could say that even from the cradle, even from the cradle, the cross looms large in the gospel of Matthew, right? It, it casts a shadow over the entire life and ministry of Jesus. See, this baby boy, he was born to die. He was born to die for me and for you. Not only that, as we move into verses 22 and 23, we see that the supernatural birth is is supported. It's confirmed by prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 19 is fulfilled in this virgin conception and birth. Take a look at verse 22, if you will. Matthew then comments, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew then tells us what that means, which means God with us. So here, Matthew, don't miss this, church. Matthew explicitly connects the virgin birth To the deity of Jesus, he explicitly connects the fact that this virgin conceived, this virgin born baby is God with us, right? The virgin birth in the deity of Jesus. Again, offering proof to certainly Jewish ears that this was indeed the Messiah. It was prophesied and now it's coming to be. The angel revealed Jesus' formal name earlier. But now he gives one of his titles, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the God of heaven and all eternity, incarnated, come to earth. What a glorious truth. Well, the account of the birth of Jesus ends in verses 24 and 25, with a super obedience being demonstrated by Joseph in his response to this angelic vision. A super obedience. It begins in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And then there's this very important addition in verse 25. But, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. In these short two verses, we see the character of this righteous man bleed through the pages, right? We see his obedience just stand out in his submission to God's will. He awakes from from his dream. Joseph obeys God's word to a T. He decides not to divorce Mary like he had planned to do, and instead he decides to take her as his wife, presumably in that very moment, at that very time, before the one-year waiting period was over. He broke the norm. He defies tradition and convention to obey God. He truly was a righteous man. This must have been, just think about the implications of this, the woman he is betrothed to is starting to show. It's very obvious that she is pregnant. And then comes what is seemingly a hurried wedding, right? He takes her into his house and they officially, so to speak, become man and wife. What, what would that look like for Joseph's character? What would people say about that? It must have been the talk of the town, the gossip and the suspicion must have abounded. We even see it in the gospel accounts when people talk about Jesus and where he came from. We know where you came from. Hint, hint, hint. And yet, despite the cost to both himself and to Mary, this godly young couple decides to be obedient to God in spite of the cost. However, Matthew is quick to tell us that in spite of taking Mary into his house as his wife, he did not consummate the marriage until after baby Jesus was born. Again, revealing Joseph's righteous character. After the baby was born, he continued to obey God. He named the child Jesus, just as, as God, through the angel, told him to do again revealing his righteous character, his concern to be obedient to God, naming the child Jesus. And the act of naming the child was significant. It was very significant, in particular in this context. Uh, Often the act of naming a child would be considered an act of adoption. And so here we see Joseph who was not the biological father of Jesus, adopting Jesus into his family, taking him as his own. And why is that important, church? Because Joseph is what? He's the son of whom? David. He's the son of David. And so Jesus here is adopted into the line of David, making him qualified to be Israel's Messiah. So, We've seen a super-sensitive situation. We've seen the announcement of a supernatural birth. And we have seen a super-obedience displayed by Joseph. So let's close our time this morning by asking, why does that matter for us? Well, I think there is a super-significance to this section for you and I. Two questions will help guide us. First, what do we learn from this section about Jesus? And then secondly, what do we learn about ourselves? See, Matthew primarily wants us to know something about this baby boy. Right? He, he's teaching us about who Jesus is in this section. So we learn um, at least three things. But he also, I think, holds forth Joseph as a great example, as, as an example worthy of emulation. So what do we learn about Jesus here? Three things at least. Number one, the virgin birth matters. I think we clearly see from this account that the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Jesus matters. So clearly, Matthew records it because he thinks it's important, right? He wants us to know something about the birth of our Savior. Clearly, this is no optional or secondary doctrine. In fact, the popular talk show host, Larry King, you ever heard of that guy, Larry King? He used to interview people on CNN. He was once asked whom he would choose if he had the choice to interview only one person across history. Who do you think he, he chose? Well, he said, I would, uh, I would choose Jesus. I would choose to interview Jesus. And then he went on to say that he would ask him just one question. And what do you think that question was? Larry King said, and I quote, I would ask Jesus this, Are you indeed virgin-born? Isn't that fascinating? Are you indeed virgin-born? And then he goes on to say, The answer to that question, King said, would explain history for me. Wow. So here we have the self-proclaimed unbelieving skeptic who gets the importance of the virgin birth right? He gets it. But in sharp contrast to the one-time pastor, Rob Bell, who apparently doesn't, as he writes in one of his books, and I quote, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus has a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of the doubt uh, beyond a, shat, a shadow of a, of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing? He goes on to say, "Could you still be a Christian?" Or, he says, "Does the whole thing speaking of Christianity, or does the whole thing fall apart?" Friends, the answer to that question is a resounding "Yes, it would fall apart." If you ask the gospel writer, Matthew, right? This is no secondary doctrine. This is not something that Christians can disagree on. This is the virgin conception and birth. It matters. Secondly, we learn that Jesus saves us from our sins. As the gospel goes on, we learn more of who Jesus is and more of what he's going to do. But, I mean, from the very beginning of the gospel account in Matthew, He makes it clear, this is the point for this baby's birth. This is why he came, to save us from our sins. See, the Bible says that from from cover to cover that the penalty for our sin is death. The penalty for our sin is physical death, the separation of our spirit from our bodies. And the penalty for for sin is, is spiritual death, separation of our spirit from God. We owe God a debt, the Bible says. A debt because of our transgression of his laws and his holiness. And friends, someone has to pay that debt. Someone has to pay that debt. Now the great news of Christmas is that we don't have to pay that debt. We deserve to pay it, undoubtedly. But we deserve, we deserve to be separated from God from all eternity to suffer his just wrath against our sins. But this Jesus, this virgin conceived, this virgin born, Emmanuel, God with us, this baby boy ends up paying for our sins. For all of our sins. Bearing the Father's wrath. So the question for us is this. Who will pay for your sins? Who's it going to be? Is it going to be you for all eternity? Or will you take this wonderful Christmas gift wrapped up in a package of wood and nails and blood on the cross? Will you take that gift and allow him to pay for it? Friends, if you've never done that, that's the greatest Christmas gift you will ever receive. Do it today. We see that Jesus saves us from our sins. Third, we see that Jesus is God with us in verse 22 the God of eternity has entered into time and space in the person of Jesus. Fully experiencing our griefs, our sorrows, our pains, our struggles. What it is to be human. See, long ago, a story is told of a a Persian king who was wise and good. He loved his people, and he wanted to know what it was like to be one of his subjects. He wanted to know about their hardships, their their suffering. And so one day he dressed as a a pauper and visited a, a poor man who lived in a cellar and who ate coarse food. The king spoke kindly to him, offering encouraging words, and then left. He decided a few days later to reveal himself to this man. And so he visited him again, and he revealed himself, saying, "'I am your king.'" The king thought, of course, the man would would ask for gifts and money and luxury, but he didn't. Instead, the the beggar said to his king, you left your palace and your glory to come visit me in this dark and dreadful and dreary place. You ate my food. You lived my life. You brought gladness to my heart. You have given your rich gifts to others. He said, but to me... You've given me the best gift of all. You've given me your very self. And that is what God has done in the person of Jesus. God with us. He became one of us. He ate our bread, so to speak. He lived our life to be with us, to reveal God to us. Second, what does Joseph show us about how we can live as Christians? I think we can learn at least three things from the life of Joseph here. Number one, we are to be righteous or faithful to the law as Joseph was. See, you can't miss it. Joseph cared about following God, and he cared about following God's revealed word. So here's what strikes me, friends. What strikes me is that Joseph cared about following God's word, even in the most intimate and personal areas of his life his marriage, and his sexuality. See, he based his decisions upon the word of God. He even based his decision on his sexual activity after he was married upon the word of God. Amazing. So friends, let me ask you, do we care as much about obeying God's word as Joseph did? Do I care as much? Well, I go to the links that he went to. I pray that we all will. Do we care as much about obeying God's word as as Joseph did? Number two, we are to be compassionate like Joseph was. See, we see this wonderful mix in Joseph in these two characteristics that don't conflict with, with one another. He cared about obeying the word of God and he lived it out. But he was compassionate towards sinners, at least one he thought was sinful right we see this compassion coming out he chose what in his mind was the least painful and shameful path that was still according to the law of god and so friends we need to ask ourselves as well are we like joseph in this sense do we care about people maybe even people who have hurt us people who seemingly have wronged us like he thought mary had done Are we merciful to those who have hurt us deeply, be it our friends or our family, our spouses, our co-workers? Or do we give them what they deserve, or do we give them less than that? Joseph was a compassionate man. And friends, we are to be the same. Three, we are to be obedient despite the cost. That is so clear from the life of Joseph. He obeyed God, I think, at great personal cost. He chose to take Mary as his wife while she was pregnant. He chose to endure a life of gossip and accusation and assault. He risked his own reputation for the sake of obeying God. Friends, will we obey God at the cost that Joseph did? Are we willing to obey God even at that great of a cost? I wonder if we are so committed to God's revealed word, that we would rather suffer unjustly at the hands of people, maybe even being called ugly names like bigot or intolerant, than go against the word of God. Is there a cost to your obedience today in some situation in your life? Maybe there is a cost to running your business or being an employee with integrity and honesty. Maybe there's a cost to raising your kids in a culture with biblical values, swimming upstream while other parents maybe do it Differently, See, there is a cost to following Christ. Friends, will we be willing to take it like Joseph was? Wow. The king's advent. We have seen a super sensitive situation. And that turns into a, a revelation of a supernatural birth followed by a super obedience by a godly man with a super significance for you and I. Let's pray.